Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I'm Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. And today we're super excited to do another edition of Female First, and that means Female First. Our friend Eves is here. Yay. Hi, Eves. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us as always. Yes, I always have a great time when I'm here, so... We do as well. <laughs> yes. We do as Love well. Love these moments. Yes. And um, you can you can hear Eves on This Day in History class and on Unpopular. She does all kinds of cool stuff. All the cool things. And so we're very glad that you take the time to join us and uh, educate us about a uh, female first. The amazing female Education firsts. is a good thing. Yes. Um, for all of us, I like we all learn here. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. We try. No, we do. We do. Like a question mark. Like, there seemed to be a right? question mark at the end of that one. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Okay, Samantha. What do you do, actually? <laughs> I accidentally said that to someone once in a conversation, and it was so embarrassing. I didn't mean it to come out that way. I was just confused about their actual job. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, that I'm really weird about. Like, when you're in social spaces, kind of mm-hmm. the first thing you go to is, well, what do you do? Yeah. And it feels very, like, impersonal and right. very robotic. And that's kind of like a weird, I don't know if that's an American thing or what, but that yeah. makes me very uncomfortable. And oh, okay. I try not to do that. Noted. <laughs> well, I love talking to, like, people in my family, older people, and like, what do you do? And I'm like, podcast. They say, what is that? I'm like, oh, right. it's this radio thing that's not on the radio. It's on the internet. Yeah. Right. Just give me this look, like, a millennial parents- nonsense. Are you up to? <laughs> There's that, yeah. <laughs> my parents were like, what? Huh? Okay. What? You talk on the radio? No, 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 no. I you love get that paid to do this? Right. <laughs> I love that question. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know how, but... Right. Oh, no, the one, one I get a lot is like, oh, like, really? Like, officially? Right. Like, yeah. they don't... Like, they, not, you know, yeah. in your bedroom. In your own Yeah, home. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no uh, shade people who do that, because yeah. those can be really good. Right. And very famous. I yeah. have a couple of friends who do it. They are great at it. Yeah. Better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't say that, Samantha. Um, okay. So you're in the self-deprecation mm, team. Yeah, I told like you. That's my thing. Stop trying to steal my thing, Eves. I'll share. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're, we like to share around here. Um, so who who is on your mind today, Eves? Who did you bring us? To so about? today we're going to talk about Gabriela Mistral. So we're gonna we're gonna test my Spanish out today. Nice. I can't promise that it's gonna be perfect. It's not gonna be perfect. I'll just say <laughs> that up front. But um, I'm gonna try my best. and I'm gonna do my best. And yeah, so Gabriela Mistral, she uh, was the first Latin American poet to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature. So that's the first that we're going to to talk about today. Woot! Yes, um, yeah, I'm excited to try uh, my Spanish as well. And this, I. I'm really glad. Um, this is someone I had not heard about. Yeah. And then when I was researching her, um, it gave me a wonderful opportunity. I haven't read poetry in a long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's always kind of not the same when you translate it. But it was still, <laughs> I, I just was, it felt good. Yeah. Some some poetry. Right. Yeah, I really wanted to. I know in the, in our past episodes, we've talked about a lot of American people. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring... So I'm glad that you hadn't heard of her because I wasn't mm-hmm. familiar with her work either. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we get the opportunity to talk about somebody from a different country. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was, you know, good to talk about her as well because she is the first Latin American 
poet in general, not just the first female, mm-hmm. to 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 get that award. Yeah, um, and she has done a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Her story reads like a plain itinerary, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's been so many places and lived right. in so many places. Right. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, and then she went here, and then she went here, right. and then she went here. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yes. It's a lot. It is. She's dark, heartbroken, my oh. kind of person. Yeah. My kind of poet. <laughs> I know. It's awful. No, we talked about that. My, I might email poetry. I will bring it in one day. I'll do it. Yes. It's I will sure. not. There yeah. are a lot of pictures of fairies. Wait, you have pictures on your poetry yes. too? Yes. They have a lot of pictures. Multi talented. Apparently, mine is straightforward, (laughs) sad, and dark. And just why? Just why? Just why? So you wrote. So so I guess I'm out of the loop here. I was never a big like poetry um, writer. I usually wrote prose. Yeah. Oh yeah. I wrote a lot of poetry. Um, I loved E. E. Cumming. It was one Mm -hmm. of my favorites. Um, I just loved the dark and death. But E. E. Cummings wasn't necessarily dark and death. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm I love I love to the nonsense. Anyway, keep going. Oh my god! <laughs> now let's go deep dive into our poetry because yeah. clearly one day <laughs> we could win a prize. Oh no! 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 Absolutely not! Absolutely not! But yeah, this was a wonderful reminder to me because I also used to write poetry and uh, I just hadn't had the chance to experience it um, in a long time. So let's let's get into the yes. story here because yeah. there is a lot of ground to cover. There is a lot. Yeah. So. She also, in addition to her poetry, was a humanist. She was also a diplomat, and she was an educator. Mm -hmm. Those were all things that were huge parts of her life. So she was born with the name Lucila Godoy Alcayaga on April 7th, 1889, and that was in the province of Coquimbo (laughs) in Vicuña, Chile, which is a small town in northern Chile's Elqui Valley. And so her parents were also school teachers. Her father's name was Jerónimo Godoy Villanueva, and he was a payador, which was a musical performer who composed songs for festivals and sang with other village musicians. So he wasn't in her life for that long. He abandoned the family when she was about three, and when he was around, he wasn't around that much. Um, But her heritage was also uh, of note. So both of her parents also had Basque and Native roots, so yeah, before her father left, though, he did read poetry to her. So that was a way that she had that kind of poetry influence in her life. So she was raised in Vicuña and also in nearby Monte Grande by her mother. And her mother's daughter from an earlier marriage was 15 years older than her, um, but she was also around. And she had some tough times in her younger years. She was falsely accused of theft. What? Yeah, she was scolded by her school teachers and stoned by classmates. Stoned? And, Dang, Gina. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. And, um, and in 1901, the family moved to La Serena. Um, she eventually applied for admission to the normal school while she was there, but she was denied permission to enroll there um, with no explanation. But she later said that the reason was because the reason she was rejected because the school knew about her publications and her support of like liberalizing education and um, giving people of all classes access, and that kind of wasn't viewed favorably. Mm. Um, <laughs> but school would become a huge part of her life, yeah. um, regardless of that fact. Mm-hmm. So when she was 15, she began working as a primary school teacher's assistant in a remote town in the Andean Mountains. 
And so she spent a lot of time visiting her paternal grandmother, Isabel Villanueva, who would encourage her to learn a lot more about the Bible. She, like, encouraged her to recite from memory passages from the Bible. And so Christianity and religion and spirituality, which we'll talk about a little bit more, were, like, huge parts of Gabriela's story and, like, what she what influenced her in writing her poetry and all the themes in her poetry. So she, uh, around this time, had been sending a lot of contributions to, like, newspapers, regional newspapers like La Voz del Elqui in Vicuña and El Coquimbo in La Serena. And around this time, she also started to write poetry in addition to the articles she was writing for newspapers. And so early on, she was already, like, imbued with this, like, spirit of, like, caring about education and specifically about, like, girls' and women's education. So, yeah, in the uh, in the 1906 article, La Instrucción de la Mujer, which is the education of women, she said, let women be educated. Nothing in them requires that they be set in a place lower than men. And she started teaching secondary school in La Quintera in 1906. And by 1909, she had also taken on administrative roles uh, in the schools. And in 1908, when she first started using the pen name Gabriela Mistral, and she was contributing to newspapers still and literary magazines, just like a ton of work. Right. Um, and by 1913, she had kind of like began using Mistral as her pseudonym just regularly, basically, and not using her own name mm-hmm. in her writing. Right. And... Her pen name is said to have come from the names of two different poets are from the archangel Gabriel and the northerly wind, the Mistral, from southern France. And so she fell in love with a railroad employee named Romelio Ureta, and he died by suicide in 1909. And that greatly affected her and her poetry, at least according to critics. A lot of critics said that 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 had a huge impact on her poetry Mm -hmm. and all that sorrow that she had and grief that she had after the death affected her, although there have been people who said that her sonnets, which she wrote later, which we'll get to, some people have said that he was the subject of those, while others have, like, kind of said that that he wasn't the subject of of those poems. They've questioned it. They've questioned it. And Mm. um, we'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. I won't even tease it. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. Ooh. (laughs) Um, So in 1910, she got her teaching certification, even though she hadn't followed a normal course of study. Um, And over the next few years, she went on to become a secondary school professor, an inspector general, and a school director. She was... um, she she worked her way up in this school that, like, a lot of people were jealous that she got into a big high school for uh, girls in Santiago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's, it, would be, it would be exhaustive to, like, go through all of the schools that she went to. She worked in a lot of rural schools in yeah. Chile and all of the work that she did. Um, but all those jobs gave her the opportunity to know her country better and than many other people who stayed there because she traveled so much and worked with students so much. And, you know, she had this knowledge of the country and the geography and the peoples, and those kind of became the basis for her interest in national values. And that, you know... All of that knowledge that she had coincided with the political and intellectual knowledge about the country as a whole. 
And so when she was 21, she met the Minister of Education, Pedro Aguirre Cerda, who later became the president of Chile. And so he would go on to help her expand the reach of her poetry. Wow. So she remained, she kept teaching, and she was dedicated to that and dedicated to education and her whole life and promoting that. But she also started getting into poetry at this time. Mm-hmm. So her name became really widely familiar because a lot of them were included in a primary school reader that was used all over the country and in Latin America. And she was also an active member of the Chilean Theosophical Association and adopted Buddhism as her religion at a certain point, though she later returned to Catholicism. And so what I teased earlier, the sonnets, um, yes. <laughs> those are the sonnets on death, Los Sonetos de la Muerte. And she wrote those in 1914. And for that, this is kind of a, a defining moment in her life. She won the Juegos Florales contest. And this poem is like, it, it helped her define her voice. And people began viewing her narrative voice as her voice, like her autobiographical voice. Mm. Um, and that was... One marked by, like, sadness, yeah. <laughs> loneliness, yes. despair, passion, jealousy, kind of mm-hmm. all of those feels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and throughout the period of 1918 to 1922, she was still working. She worked in three different schools. And by the early 1920s, her poetry was published in a lot of different magazines and literary journals. And so her first book was Desolacion, which was a collection of poems that were previously published in newspapers and magazines. And so Columbia University professor Federico de Onis introduced her work to high school teachers looking to expand Spanish language classes in New York City. And a committee formed that worked on producing her book of poems that could be used in U.S. classrooms. And so with a grant from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, um, the Instituto de las Españas published the book in New York. So not Chile, um, which we'll get to in her story. Like she wasn't um, super widely recognized in Chile during her time. She was, but like she got a lot of international attention Mm -hmm. instead. And so death, suffering, sadness, Uh as you can tell by the title, Desolation, (laughs) to show up a lot in Desolacion. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, like I said, she was getting all this international, she was getting more and more international attention for her poetry, which she had already had for her journalism and her public speaking. Um, So she has a ton of poems. And one of the things that was notable about her poems was that they were very simple and understandable, and that was a big reason they were used in schools and people were drawn mm-hmm. to them in non-Spanish-speaking um, places that used them for education. Um, but they were also still full, even though they were simple, of yeah. emotion and they were warm. Mm-hmm. And so her poetry contained all these themes of like love, death, childhood, maternity, religion. It was lyrical, but still unpretentious. And it had these religious under and overtones as she was a devout Christian. Mm -hmm. And so in 1922, the Universidad de Chile granted her the professional title of the teacher of Spanish in recognition of her professional and literary contributions. And that same year, the president of Mexico asked her to assist in the country's education reform effort, which is a project under the direction of Education Minister Jose Vasconcelos. And she helped planning and reorganizing the rural education in the country. And 
At that same time, she was learning about the people in the country and the culture of the country. And so while she was in Mexico in 1923, she published a collection of essays called Lecturas para Mujeres, or Readings for Women, that included the works of classic and contemporary writers, including herself. Mm-hmm. And after two years in Mexico, this is where we get to the really travely part. After two years in Mexico, she traveled to Europe and the United States, and she was kind of welcomed warmly there by officials. And um, she was a featured speaker in 1924 at the Pan American Union headquarters. And this is another aspect of her life, her Pan Americanism mm-hmm. in, in Washington. So she was welcomed at those headquarters in Washington when she was in the United States. And so she championed Pan-Americanism, which is a movement for the advocacy of close cooperation between the countries, the member countries of North and South America. And she said this in her address. She said, I believe that difference in the case of humanity as well as in nature is a merely another form of enrichment. In this way, what is Latin, even in its sharpest contrast, when face-to-face with Anglo-Saxonism, is a kind of strength through different virtues, through other modes of living, but in no sense the occasion of inevitable discord. And she went on to say, friendship of the different peoples sought by the Pan-American Union would be easily attained if we were all imbued to the farthest limit of consciousness with the concept of dissimilarity without inferiority. So that kind of gives a good view of like how she felt about her travels, what was like imbued in her work, um, Mm -hmm. how she felt about relations between people. And... We know, I mean, this was the 1920s, what was going on. And I only know about United States of America because, you know, this is where I live. And, right. But, like, we know what was going on here in the United States of yeah. America. Mm-hmm. And everything wasn't, like, butterflies and rainbows. Everybody wasn't getting along well, you know. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's it does seem, like, very optimistic to me. But I think a lot of that showed up in her poetry and in her writing. Right. Um, so... She also emphasized, like, how important it was and how important she felt it was to approach these ideals of continental unity through the application of, like, Christian faith and values, so that religion showing back up. And so years later, in 1931, the Pan-American Union also commissioned her to write a pledge for students to stay in the classrooms of all the member states. And (laughs) the pledge kind of said that North and South Americans had this common destiny by way of geographic unity. Um, oh, so, all right. Yeah. Yeah. You got thoughts about that? I wish it were true. I know, I know. <laughs> I wish it were true. I know, I know. Um, because it's like, uh, at the same time, there was a lot of imperialism going on from the right. United States itself. Mm-hmm. And there's talk about, you know, that in here, specifically directed toward Latin American countries too, like yeah. Cuba. Yeah. Um, but she also emphasized in the pledge the right of nations to self-determination, mm. and she was kind of anti-imperialist. So the list of titles and credits and award list of all of that goes oh, yeah. on for her. Um, she was appointed an executive member of the Institute of Educational Cinematography in Rome, and so she kept writing poetry as well. So her next book, was, which included poems for children, was called Ternura, or Tenderness. And that was published in 1924 in Madrid. And that contained themes of motherhood, of childhood, of the world, and of nature. And so she wanted the book to be, and this is our quote, poetry for school that does not cease to be poetry because it's saturated of things of the heart, more affected by the breath of the soul. I just love that, like, I feel <laughs> this is probably 
very stereotyping, but I feel like poets always talk in poet, like speak in poetry right, as well. Right, like even right. when they're not writing poetry, yeah. Right. Or I like to imagine that at least. They're always a poet. Always you just a poet. Do to know it <laughs> exactly. Hi. But I'm only the non-self-deprecating poets, oh. because the self-deprecating poets probably. Right. Just cry. Yeah. (laughs) We're like, read my stuff or don't, whatever, you know. (laughs) It's going to burn anyway. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) There is a lot more to this story, but first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We're back. Thank you, sponsor. So she returned to Chile in 1925, and there she formally retired from the country's education system. But throughout her whole life, she would receive a pension. Um, so as the government, the government at this time granted her retirement due to her years of service and her contribution to the culture, but she depended on that pension for the rest of her life. And so she also returned to Catholicism around this time, and she was a follower of St. Francis of Assisi, and she entered the Franciscan order as a member of the laity. And so she was appointed the country's representative to the Institute for Intellectual Cooperation. Whoa. Which is a part of the League of Nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And in 1926, she moved to France, um, which Annie, you know well. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Probably not as well as she did. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Are you trying to get me to speak French? Oh, no. (laughs) Not yet. I'll leave that to you, Eves. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. My name is deceiving because I'm really bad at speaking French. Um, You know, you just got to give it a go. Yeah. So, while one language at a time. Yes, (laughs) it's true. (laughs) While she was uh, there, she started the publication of a series of Latin American literary classics in French translation, and she gave lectures and toured around the United States, around Puerto Rico, the Caribbean, Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina, among other places, and she lived mostly in Italy and France from 1926 to 1932. And in 1927... Yes. The Chilean Teachers Association sent her as its delegate to the Congress of Educators at Locarno. And more more things, more accolades. She represented Chile and Ecuador at the International University Federation in Madrid. And um, here's an interesting personal part of her story. When she was living in Provence, a brother that she didn't know that she had, her father's son, Mm -hmm. um, left his son with her as his mother had just Mm -hmm. died. And, you know, he became a part of her life. Right. Her her mother died in 1929, uh-huh. so not long after that. And she wrote a series of eight poems, Muerte de mi madre, about, you yeah. know, influenced mm-hmm. by that. Uh-huh. And so in 1930, the government suspended her retirement benefits, and she began doing more journalistic writing to make up for that lack of finances. Jeez, they suspended them? Right. Yeah, she got it back, though. She got it back. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm, like, worried for this person. Yeah. Who passed. <laughs> oh, no. She made it through, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She lived a full life. She did, indeed. 
And another thing she did to, you know, keep those finances flowing during that time, she did a lot of, um, she went to a lot of universities. She was at Barnard College of Columbia University from 1930 to 1931. She worked at Middlebury College and Vassar College in 1931. And she gave conferences and wrote at the University of Puerto Rico at Rio Piedras. And in 1932, she became Chilean consul. And three years later, Chilean Congress named her the country's sole life consul. Oh. Yeah, so this is also where a lot of her travel comes in. She was in Naples, Madrid, Lisbon, Nice, Petropolis, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, Veracruz, Rapallo, and New York. And as a consul, she interacted with Pablo Neruda, mm-hmm. who is a well-known poet in Chile, and also a diplomat and a politician. And when she was in, when Gabriela was in Temuca in southern Chile, when she was teaching, that's where Neruda grew up. And so she had actually given him books and encouraged his talent um, in Chile when he was younger. So there is like Pablo Neruda is more of a, probably at the time, more recognized in Chile for his work, whereas she did a lot. as She was very recognized internationally. Huh, uh-huh. So she's widely quoted for Su Nombre Es Hoy, in which she said this, We are guilty of many errors and many faults, but our worst crime is abandoning the children, neglecting the fountain of life, Many of the things we need can wait. The child cannot. Right now is the time his bones are being formed, his blood is being made, and his senses are being developed. To him, we cannot answer tomorrow. His name is today. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's too real today. Too real, too real. Yeah. (laughs) So in 1938, um, her book, Tala, or Felling in English, was published in Buenos Aires, by the writer and critic Victoria Ocampo. And Gabriela donated her author's rights for the book to Spanish children who were displaced and orphaned by the Spanish Civil War. And the book includes poems inspired by her mother's death that that has showed up before, and also poems divided into three sections that were matter, um, verse about bread, salt, water, and air, land of Chile, and America. And after World War II, she also served as Chilean delegate to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women until her death in 1957. So uh, she also suffered more loss in her life Mm -hmm. um, of people who were close to her. In 1942, her friend Stefan Zvig and his wife, they died by suicide and in 1943, her nephew, the the boy who she had adopted and raised as her son, who I mentioned earlier, right. he died from arsenic poisoning. And that was ruled as a suicide, but um, Mistral believed that he was murdered. Oh, mm. really? Yeah. Oof. That's rough. Yeah, that is really rough. And it was... Two years after that, 1945, when she became the first Latin American to get the Nobel Prize in Literature. And she was awarded the Nobel Prize for her lyric poetry, which, inspired by powerful emotions, has made her name a symbol of the idealistic aspirations of the entire Latin American world. 
her lyric poetry. What a year to get it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, near the end of her life, she was writing Poema de Chile, which was a long narrative poem that she worked on, but she never finished it. Um, and she also, in it, she explored musical poetry for children and poetry of nature. And in 1951, she was awarded the National Literature Prize in Chile. And going back to talking about the Pablo Neruda thing, he had already won the National Literature Prize in Chile years earlier. Um, so Gabriela's last book was Lagar, or Wine Press, and that was published in 1954, her last book during her lifetime because she did have stuff published posthumously. Mm-hmm. Um, she went back to Santiago in 1954 as well, which was the first time she had been back to Chile since 1938. So she didn't go back to Chile much when she started. When she left, she was like, I'm gone. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Check out all these places. (laughs) Yeah. And she was uh, diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer in 1956. Um, In the last years of her life, she lived in Roslyn, New York. She had diabetes, and she also had heart issues, and she died in Long Island, of pancreatic cancer in January of 1957 when she was 67 years old. So during her lifetime, she published around 800 essays in magazines and newspapers. And as I said earlier, she wasn't much celebrated in Chile. Um, And there were a lot of things that were published posthumously for her. So Langston Hughes, who was a friend of hers, prepared the first volume of her poetry, translated into English, and that was published in 1957, shortly after her death. Um, and she she also had schools and libraries named after her. The Her image is on the 5,000 Chilean peso banknote, yeah. uh-huh. which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. And <laughs> <laughs> I take it. <laughs> right. You want your money, your, your face on money, don't you? That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. There was this image that formed of, of Gabriela Mistral after she she died. She had public success as a figure in the U.S. when she was alive, although a lot of people were invoking her name and image uh, in a certain way as little of her work appeared in English when she was alive. And she criticized U.S. policy, and that could have had something to do with the lack of placement of her work in the U.S. press um, because of this image of, like, American— this. Pan-Americanism, this image of American unity that she became a symbol of in a way. Mm-hmm. And people also uplifted her image as a, being a figure of national sentimentality, this conservative, kind of sad, you know, depressed, lonely woman oh. who kind of bent to the will of the patriarchal state and exalted motherhood. Um, and like this this image of her being as a, a vir- virgin Christian pure life of like maternal service, uh-huh. thinking about all the education that she was involved in during her lifetime and the themes of her work itself, kind of diametrically opposed to this idea or these ideas, this image of Pablo Neruda, who was atheist, you know, a lot different. Yeah. Um, but there has been since debate of her sexuality with a lot of people saying that she was a lesbian and wasn't out about it. Mm -hmm. And even though she herself denied it, she wrote that she was not a lesbian and that the rumors were unfounded, they were silly. American Doris Dana, who was her friend, inherited Gabriela's estate. And they sent letters to each other that were published after Dana died 
Um, she was the executive of her estate. Mm-hmm. But after she died, they were published in Spanish and then later in English, not that long ago in English. And they expressed a lot of love for each other in these letters. And there's a there's a film out there about Gabriela and her lesbianism. Um, yeah. Uh, oh. So that's something that, okay, even though she is kind of one of those said, not said things. Yeah. Um, it's something that's still contested, like whether she... I don't think we need to spend too much time right. on that, sure, yeah. whether she was a lesbian or not, but it is something that's been brought up about her life. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe she was bisexual and they were just misrepresenting her altogether. That's yeah. Why she would say she was not just a straight lesbian. Yeah. Well, so it did come up how, you know, in her poems, well, thinking about the guy who died by suicide yeah. was the subject of her poetry. Um a lot of the times we can put heterosexuality on a poem because that's how we read it. Right, right. So, or that's the assumptions that we make based mm-hmm. on the patriarchal system that we are influenced by, right. brainwashed by. Um, mm-hmm. So, re, kind of recontextualizing everything that she wrote and instead of assuming that, that okay, maybe this relationship that she had with Doris Dana and maybe with other people were, um, you know, romantic relationships. And for that reason, we can reinterpret, you know, the way her poetry was written. She wasn't this lonely, sad, depressed woman who was, like, subject to the whims of the patriarchy. And it's something that's still debated and contested, but... Still, her her work speaks for itself. This is from one of her poems. En pasando el río grande, las mariposas han vuelto y en el aire amigo va un dulce estremecimiento y las hojas del romero baten de su ángel sin peso, un ángel garabateado como por veras y juego. And that means, as soon as the big cold left, the butterflies returned, And in the air, my friend, is a sweet tremor, and the rosemary leaves sway under their light angel, an angel all painted as if it were for real or just for play. That's lovely. It is lovely. And very excellent job, Eve. Good job. (laughs) Nicely done. Yeah. I love how she had a lot of her work was characterized by, you know, darkness and death and all this stuff, but despite the things that she had gone through, she still had this very it seems like hopeful streak and and this desire to to help children or right. to be there for people who didn't have a voice and she was she's providing one of, that voice. She's one of those who, much like me, the people who consistently are in battle mode have to let out their darkness somehow. So mm-hmm. much like that gathers within them because they're mm-hmm. fighting a system, mm-hmm. which she was a fighter, mm-hmm. seemingly with a social justice point as well and for children and for education and for women. And so part of this poetry is to let out her grief mm-hmm. in the parts that she doesn't have. She can't talk about consistently when she's in the middle of trying to advocate for others. That's what it seems. Yeah, and she, saw, and she saw so much in her travel as well. Like it was a really turbulent time. Yeah. And I, it, it was, she lived a life of service, essentially. It was a life of service. And so... Yeah, just her her story as an inspiration for women and and for poets and for writers and for people who uh, 
want to contribute to the world, the things that they have to give to the world, what they have to offer. And it's a very inspirational. It absolutely is. She's very inspirational. She, women contain multitudes and she contained many multitudes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she, she accomplished a lot. And yeah, we would highly recommend going, finding her poetry and reading it, checking it out. Mm-hmm. We have some more for you listeners, but first we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Is that, do you have anything else you want to add before we come to an end on One more story? poem that you want to put in there? <laughs> No, I won't grace people with they can't my wonderful speech speaking. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's all. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. That was, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah, I, I'm just so glad to have learned about her. I hope that listeners right. are as well. Um, also, just... Behind the scenes side note, Eves and I bonded over SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> yes. and <a> ad break. <laughs> and I felt very, very old as I was listening to the two of you <laughs> enjoy life in SpongeBob. Thank you. Yeah, that, there should oh, be a poem about that. About SpongeBob? We can about do maybe finding joy in SpongeBob. Yes. Okay, maybe the we should jointly write this. Yeah. I don't want to take credit for this. This oh. is a joint, you know, a team effort. Yes. And so. then we'll do a dramatic reading of it. Yes. Okay. For the office. We're not gonna tell them we're gonna do it. We're just gonna do it. Like the joys of SpongeBob. Just you know period. Occasionally there is just a mic out in our like open area. So what? Next time yes. It's usually like for meetings or something. Uh, I miss out um, on those. So Next time, so you why, and I. The question is, why aren't we doing office talent shows? There's, that is an excellent question, Eves. I've actually thought about what talent I would do. Like, do you ever worry about that kind of thing? Like yeah. if somebody's like, you must perform at a talent show. Yeah, and well, I'm like, I have no do? talents. <laughs> wait, wait. Like, I have no talents at Does all. Does that happen? <laughs> it might. <laughs> at any minute. Movies tell me that it could happen. Movies tell you? Yes. We have to save the world by singing a song? You have, yeah. Well, it's very important to your reputation and thus your world that you perform well at whatever talent right. show. I don't think I've ever. No, I've definitely competed in a talent show. I did tap dancing. Oh, Can you tap dance, though? I have a really mm-hmm. embarrassing story about a talent show. <laughs> okay, it's not that embarrassing. I feel like it's a normally embarrassing <laughs> story. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> when I was in elementary school... <laughs> Oh, I'm old. When I was in elementary school, we had a talent show. Uh-huh. And do you remember the song by LL Cool J and Jennifer Lopez? Um, <laughs> you're laughing before I even get it out. It's okay, Annie. It was embarrassing. Um, I'm not going to sing it now, but there is a song uh-huh. um, by J-Lo and LL Cool J. And I was... It go, okay, I'll sing it. She's like, it's such a shame that I'm leaving. Can't take the way you mistreated me. That song. I'm not going to keep singing. Uh-huh. And um, I think I had LL Cool J's part. And the girl who I was performing with had J-Lo's part. And she, I'm pretty sure it was that way. It may have been the other way, but I knew both parts anyway. Okay, <laughs> of course. You so, were Yeah. And then she just totally flubbed and forgot her words and just like, 
was stuck in the middle of the performance, and I had to, like, pick it up for her. Uh-huh. But, and I did it. <laughs> but I was crying in the car after because <laughs> I was so embarrassed. And then a girl that I knew, I'm pretty sure she was, like, a grade older than me, but anyway, a girl who was also, I think she was also in the, um, in the talent show, knocked on my window, and she said, I will never forget her face. And she said, she, like, motioned, putting her, I'm putting my fingers, like, as if there were tears, tears running down my face. Uh-huh. And, not like, this is going to be in the show or anything. Um, oh, now it is. <laughs> and um, she was like, I was crying, too. <laughs> for you? No, not for me. No. But, <laughs> that would have been really nice. Um, but it was pretty embarrassing. But it I still like know that song by heart. Right, and you just felt embarrassed. I mean, I guess. Yeah, yeah but like yeah. when you're a kid, right. things like that feel huge. Yeah. Right. Oh, I did sure. a talent show and I sang a Mariah Carey song, uh-huh. which, by the way, I did not hit that note, oh, just no. so you know. <laughs> but then I performed with a girl who, it was, there was like, like three or four of us. There's not even that many of us to do this talent show. Mm-hmm. And she had her whole, co- it was a Little Mermaid song. She had a set. She had a, the costume and everything. And I came in with my one bad tape. Mm-hmm. of the Mariah Carey song that I really <laughs> messed up. So that's my memories. I'm like, I will never sing Mariah Carey again. I, so it feels what like you're saying we is we're getting, exactly, yeah. we're getting you to do it in Carey. This is your like redemption story. Yeah. I see so you're what gonna it is You're going to do your now. LL Cool J, J-Lo. Yes. Well, and you're going to do my partner, dancing? though. I never really messed up the top dancing. Oh. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Excuse the f- <laughs> I, I did fall off the stage once, but that was a different thing. That was a different thing. I've never fallen off stage. Well, it's the sound people make when a young child falls off the stage. <laughs> I won't soon forget it. <laughs> and I broke my ankle. Oh, But now sucks. everyone is up to speed on our... <laughs> What we're going to do at the talent show. Uh, And our SpongeBob poem. We'll keep everybody up to date on that. And SpongeBob songs. But um, in the meantime, Eve, thanks again for joining (laughs) us. Uh, Where can listeners find you, hear you? You can hear me on This Day in History class as well as Unpopular. And you can find both of those on all the social media things, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And yeah. Yeah. And I uh, highly recommend checking them out. Can't wait until you come back. Yeah. Me too. Yes. Um, you should the- do this twice a month. Oh, God. We'll get this once a month. <laughs> He's just like, please, please don't add more work. Here's what we do. Here's what we do. We just do the one person split up in two with all of our side bits added to it. Oh, you got something there. I mean, we could have <laughs> a segment. <laughs> some content. We could have a segment that's called Just, just the Bits. <laughs> <laughs> wait. <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, look out for that. Oh, or maybe don't. Maybe Just a don't. bit sounds like it could be sexual. Too. Yeah, a little oh, bit that's sexual. Sexual, you know. People like that blonde right? It won't Just be sexual because it won't exist. Um, but you know what does exist? <laughs> our, our email address. You can find us at Steph Media Mom Stuff at iHeartMedia.com. Or on Instagram at Stuff I'm Never Told You, or on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 